Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame. This is episode 35. And it is my great, great pleasure and honor to bring you an episode that I didn't think would be happening today or, I don't know, maybe ever. My guest today is Brooke Gladstone, the co-host, along with Bob Garfield, of WNYC's On the Media, which is the radio show slash podcast that I have to listen to every week. I love Hardy White, but sometimes I get behind and I have to catch up. I love all the things the rest of us love from NPR. I love love and radio, but I have to listen to On the Media. And if you hate where America's at right now and are interested in how and why the media covers it the way it does and want to be filled with insight and information that you can put to use in the world, maybe you need to listen to it too. Uh, Look for On the Media on anywhere you listen to podcasts or it may well be on your local NPR station. Recently, I've been listening to interviews with Brooke Gladstone about a book she wrote that just came out called The Trouble with Reality, A Rumination on Moral Panic in Our Time. And I don't know, maybe I was feeling a little cocky or something. I think it was last Sunday. And I thought, well, she seems to be having a lot of fun doing these interviews. And Monday morning, I, I looked up the publisher. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me tell you who that is now, because I, 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 I should thank them. Workman. And I emailed the publicist, and I said, hey, uh, is Brooke available for interviews? Expecting I'd hear back, maybe in a few days, maybe not at all. And a couple hours later, I get an email back uh, from a a nice woman writing, uh, how about tomorrow at 4 o'clock? Which sent me into a bit of a panic because I don't know anything really about Brooke except that I listen to her show and I I really get a lot out of it. I won't say more than that because you'll hear it in the conversation. And I hadn't read the book yet. So I asked her for a, a copy. She got me a digital copy of the book, and I read it on Monday, and I talked to her on Tuesday, and I had a lovely, lovely time, and I hope you will, too, listening to it. A couple of notes about it are, what else do I have here? That we only had half an hour, and... So I tried to pack in as much as possible. And at one point, I think it sounds like we're both saying Russia. And because I had to edit out the word Limbaugh, it's Rush Limbaugh we're talking about, which becomes clear, but I thought I'd make it clearer. Here's Brooke Gladstone. I hope you enjoy it.
third time's the charm. It As seems... they say, I've never understood that, but... Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> I always say second time's a charm in terms of my own marriages. So, Congratulations. Stick... Thank you very much. Thanks so much for talking to me. Uh, I'm going to start off by saying that I, I am, above anything, a fan. And I wanted to start by saying a couple things after listening a couple times to your great conversation with Max Linsky. Oh, yeah. With, I did one. One was a kind of a bio, and the other one was, I don't know what, blather, I think. The more recent one. Not blather at all. Um, but it, he didn't really get to an answer of why you and Bob and the show are so comforting to us out here in the world. <laughs> Part of it is just your voices and your personality, like Jad and Robert at Radiolab or any number of voices who are our companions. Part of it is the transparency and the willingness to be, to have a, to have a stand and put it on the radio. In a time when people are yeah. ridiculously careful, <laughs> right? Yeah, we were we were fairly early in the N NPR realm to do that. I think, and we were able to do it because, I mean, among shows that deal with the news, mm -hmm. we were able to do it because we are uh, much more of an analysis and criticism and commentary show than we are a news-breaking program. So, you know, we weren't dealing with facts that we were presenting anybody with, you know, for the first time, for the most part. And, uh, and also, we just felt that the whole nature of the discourse between the news producer and the, news and the audience had uh, changed. The Internet had, uh, as they say, the cliche, had leveled the playing field. You couldn't get away with trying to be Walter Cronkite anymore. The people who were trusted were people who laid it on the line as honestly as they could and then tried to be fair and accurate, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is why in one, you know, in the 70s, Walter Cronkite was rated most credible and uh, or most trusted. And, you know, in our era, it was Jon Stewart. Yeah, absolutely. Who took many a position uh but mm -hmm. even, not even in recent years but just since november there was one episode you did soon after the election when i think your cohort was going kind of nuts with the way other people were treating things as normal pretty quickly um with good reason and there i'll, I'll tell my when i find that episode i'll tell my audience after was it this. called normalize this maybe I'll go back. Uh, there look. was another one that we did. It was just for podcast, not for broadcast, called Now What? And, yeah, I think uh, that it was, was Now That what? was me and Bob yelling at each other. Yeah. But it was, it was and yet it was comforting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Some people tweeted that they didn't like to see mom and dad fighting. <laughs> it's important to know mom and dad are human. <laughs> the other thing I want to specifically refer to from the long form. Uh, conversation is that uh, while he backed off it, I was ready to scream, and I'm glad you did when he said that you had an inside baseball, an insider show. Because I'm not a media guy. I have you and some odd podcasts like Love and Radio, and I listen to my NPR, but I'm not a big 
I have positions, but I'm not a political guy and I'm not a media guy. And you are my very accessible connection to that. And, and it's great. And that's, that's important. I think part of it has to do with I was kind of dragged kicking and screaming into covering this whole area. You know, it's so vicarious and it's all about policies and perceptions and proposals and where's the meat, you know, how does it affect your life? So when we do our editorial meetings here, I usually just say, why should I care? Why should the average person care? And uh, that's pretty much the alpha and omega of how we choose our stories. We don't always succeed, obviously, but that's what we're trying to do, make it so people have a reason to care. Well, you do. And, and I feel like you reach both people in New York. And I'm a, sorry, listeners, but I'm going to say it again. I've taken the Albany to New York, to San Francisco, to a tiny little town <laughs> in Massachusetts called Turner's Falls that's not unlike the town you visited in Ohio. Uh, oh really? On the poverty tour. It's a working mm-hmm. to middle class town that is part of the world that when friends come up from New York and I meet them at at an antique fair or something uh, in Massachusetts and they walk around with me and they're like, "Oh my God, there are Trump supporters here." And I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> sixty three million of them." You know, it's not just somewhere in five southern states. There aren't yeah. sixty, and so I, I think that you're bringing that. I think that's a great you, – you mentioned that when I believe Max asked what your, your mission or your goals are. And bringing awareness of that, I think, is, is great. Yeah. I mean, I just wrote this little book. It's a very little book. It's more of an essay in book form called The Trouble with Reality, A Rumination on Moral Panic in Our Time. And it's trying to explain how so many people feel so – upset now that it isn't just about a, about politics or a president or an election that this is actually more existential a lot of people feel like their reality broke that they're not living where they thought they were living that principles that they had accepted about how the world worked didn't seem to apply to this world that they were living in now and uh I really dug into that trying to figure it out for me. You know, I went down a lot of rabbit holes. I read it last night. And, oh, you and did? I really, <laughs> and, uh, yes, I really, and because yesterday I thought of contacting you, and then the, the publicist said, how about tomorrow? And, and so I, I read the book, and it's, it's a great, because it, it's short, and it is comforting and informative, and gives people on paper a kind of a version of, of a lot of the dialogue from the shows that's really wonderful. Thanks. But what interested me was, especially when I live, you know, I put my dogs play in the park with people who I say hello to who voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And to his people, reality has been lost for a long time. And right. he, and here's where we get to my topic, which is fame is real to them because they've known him on TV. And I think people don't talk about that that much, but I think they would have voted for a lot of, I mean, I was going to say a lot of worse people, but it's hard to imagine. He wasn't a hero on his show. He's someone real to them because of the artifice of TV and fame. 
He's, he was familiar. Yeah. And he seemed authentic. That was uh, yeah. one of his great skills. Yeah. Even if he's, I think to some of them, an authentic scumbag. Pots. Yeah. <laughs> he was real. He's trying to make a buck and will lie and cheat to do it. But mm-hmm. it's transparent and it's real to me. And it also to me and my, you know, my, my little obsession uh, topic is, th- is that something that hasn't been coming up so much is that this is the, the apex of, of, of the triumph of reality TV fame. It's a value in and of itself mm-hmm. that started when I was a kid and people would want to get on Jerry Springer and be humiliated. Like that was a badge of honor. And he was a young guy in New York when I, I arrived in New York right when Trump Tower was going up. And this guy was just, he would, he, all he wanted was people to look at him and, mm-hmm. and look where it's gone. But I think, you know, you talk, yeah, you talk about news media, but how about entertainment media and, and the, the value of fame in and of itself? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question. That's all people crave these days in politics. They want to mention, they want to go on the shows. They don't want to work behind the scenes. This is so, I mean, this kind of level playing field that I talked about in the news media plays out in every single realm. You want to recognize people and you want them to recognize you. That is three, you know, if you think you get them, and that was one thing that I mentioned in the book, that we don't need much before we decide we understand a person. In fact, once we've made our decision, we'll deflect any information that contradicts it. And so you get to know someone over years, even on a show like The Apprentice, and you feel that you know him that he's a part of your life. I mean, anybody who's in the public realm, you know, if you meet a movie star or anyone, you you do feel like you know them, even if you talk to them and you realize, wow, I don't really know them at all, do I? But you just can't help it. It's a powerful illusion. I mean, this plays out in the radio, too, because radio is so intimate. It, uh, you know... Unlike television, you can almost have the illusion that the person is talking to you alone. And so it can create a very potent relationship. The thing is, is that, you know, it's one way, except for Twitter, stuff like that, which helps make it two-way. And that intimacy is also, and that fame is also a lot of, you know, think of what Russia's done to get us where we are with his intimacy yeah, Russia single-handedly reinvigorated a dying medium. AM radio was going down the tubes until the 80s, and he came along. He found a place where he could bring a message to people who long felt that their views were not being represented. And, uh, and from there, with the end of the Fairness Doctrine, there was no effort to be accurate or even civil. Yeah. There was no requirement. And still there isn't, but... Well, you know, many people blame that on the end of the Fairness Doctrine. It was a problematical uh, requirement to begin with and would never have um, applied to cable or any social media. It was about the uh, broadcast uh, 
spectrum and that it was a spare resource. It was not an infinite resource. Now in an age of infinite information resources, you could never apply the fairness doctrine even if you wanted to. I've wandered off. Sorry about that. No, I, I like I love the wandering off. That's that's kind of what, what I do usually over the course of an hour. Um, but because I see the clock ticking away, I want to ask you a couple of things about you. Uh, one of the things in the earlier conversation I listened to was you. Uh, let me quote you. I'm not going to get any richer or more famous than I am now. <laughs> this is it. This is it. This is fine. I just don't have any more fucks to give. So what I want to know is, when did you reach that point? Because part of why I do this is because I feel like it's important for people to deal with this difficult thing, fame, instead of pretending it doesn't exist if it repulses us. And part mm -hmm. of it is for therapy for me. I want to get to the point where I do not have any more fucks to give about my success and acclaim, et cetera. Well, there are some people who, you know, who are just born without any fucks to give. And, uh, and I envy them. I mean, basically, I had to become 60. I had to realize that the only thing that really mattered now, the number one priority is time and how I spend it. It's not about climbing up the blood-stained rungs of the <laughs> public radio hierarchy. It's not about getting a TV show, not that I ever wanted one. It's not about getting a great table in a restaurant, which is something that seems to matter to people here in New York City. Mm -hmm. It's just about the fact that I'm looking at the end of the sentence. And what do I want to get done? What do I want to have accomplished? Even on the assumption that nothing lasts, and let's, let's face it, this is a very ephemeral medium. I mean, we're talking, you'll edit it, it'll, it'll go, well, it, it won't even go on the broadcast, right? This is a digital show. So, uh, but, you know, these things, as a broadcaster, I know that my stuff is out by Venus, about an hour after I've finished it, and there's no reason to assume that any of it will last. So what can I accomplish in the short term? How do I want to spend my time? And that's why I don't have any more fucks to give in terms of career. You know, I wanted to write an essay in two weeks that addressed these concerns. It was a challenge that was brought to me by the publisher, and I thought, I'll try that. You know, it's just, let's try it. Let's try it while I have the time. You know, I think I may have mentioned to, to Max that my parents didn't live all that long. So, you know, even though there's no reason to assume that I will, you know, only have another eight years left or something like that, it's possible. Oh. And so, you know, no, seriously, it's, it's helpful. It's helpful. It's clarifying. It's a good thing. Uh, you know, I just, I kind of wish that everybody had that part of 60 going for them, you know, without the physical decrepitude. That would be just great. Because then people would, you know, understand that working for the future is not necessarily the best way to spend your time. Yeah. Once again, you have been unintentionally... Uh comforting in that you gave the answer I was hoping for. I'm 52 
and I'm feeling <laughs> it lessen somewhat, even as I have the year anniversary of the show and want more people to hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. I'm much more about the conversations one by one and enjoying them. Yeah. I mean, you know, some people will enjoy them. You want them to enjoy them. That's part of why you're doing it. But it's also how you spend the moments of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to say, I think that the deadline and the few weeks you had to write the book were brilliant. Because it's, it's it's a nice 90, you know, or less pages that you can consume and reread. It's almost like it has an I Ching-ish quality. You can just pick it up on any given page and find one of the uh, incredible bunches of, of references and dialogues and references to something that was fascinating to me when I first heard you talking about it recently. And that is that I grew up in high school in the, you know, in the seventies and eighties and no one had us read Huxley because it was the cold war and mm-hmm. we never feared what we have now. And maybe you could, say what it is that, that we that you've talked about in the book about Huxley versus Orwell. Right. Well, uh, you know, I got this from Neil Postman's book, uh, Musing Ourselves to Death, which he wrote in the 80s. And some of it is dated, certainly, but some of it really seems to endure. And he made a comparison between Huxley's Brave New World and 1984, which a lot of people are reading now, of Orwell, and he said our world is much more like Huxley. We, we basically fill our lives with trivia, not with fear. We are defeated by what we love, what attracts us and seduces us, not with what oppresses us and suppresses us. It's not censorship that's getting to us. It's, it's surfeit. It's so much that we don't care. Yes. Yeah. Well done. Well, it is 4.23, and you said you had to leave it for So far, she's just in there dialing that person up. She hasn't gotten me yet, so let's get another few minutes in here before she does. Great. Uh, let me ask you a, a, <laughs> one of my standard episode questions, and that is, mm-hmm. in your career, in, in your life, have there been any... What... what respect or accolades or attention has meant the most to you besides mission driven i mean your own personal you mean like awards or something? awards or someone who you always wanted to appreciate your work or someone who who trained you and then and then appreciated it i know this is going to sound kind of stupid but i have gotten so much appreciation i've done so much better than I ever imagined I would. Uh, I, let's see, that's a tough one. What did you imagine? Well, you know, of course, you know, I, I grew up in this, you know, I was born in 1955 and it was a, you know, in the 60s, which I remember, it was a time of excitement and a time of an expanding economy. It was the American century and so on. It was very different for my kids. So I assumed that I was incredibly smart and that no matter what I tried, I would succeed at. And that wasn't the case. I majored in theater, a really smart idea, (laughs) and got out of college and was 
absolutely crushed by depression, which I'd never had to that degree. And back then they didn't have any good drugs, so I didn't take any. And uh, it took me a while to crawl myself out of it. And by the time I did, I was much more realistic about what my life was likely to be. I hoped that I would be able to tell stories somehow, but, you know, I had applied to law school and that was fine, but then I decided not to go and I was waitressing and, and I was in a, a ferment and then I just took whatever jobs were offered, you know, like the, uh, the first journalism job was working for the Trade Association of the Strip Mining Industry, which I was fired from after about a year. And, uh, you know, it wasn't I, – I had lost all sense of entitlement, and maybe that was a good thing. But good or not, that's how it was. And then it was very, very slow from there. It wasn't a, a quick rise, and I didn't really know where I would go. I didn't really – have an ultimate goal. I kind of moved crabwise through my life, not really seeing where I was headed. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like you've landed in a place that you, again, to to quote Mr. Linsky, are clearly invigorated right now. <laughs> I was so happy when I got a job at National Public Radio. It turned out that radio was the right thing for me, and I don't think it ever would have occurred to me. I really don't. It was, uh, I was working at a public broadcasting publication, one of, you know, a trade paper, another one of my little jobs that I had trying to make a living. And, uh, and that's how I encountered it. You know, I guess if I had advice for anybody, it would simply be keep your eyes open. You know, it's great to have a path, keeps you calm, but don't stick to it. Wander off, you know, because life is short. Not because it's long. It seems counterintuitive. You should get to it if life is short. But actually, not if you hurry to figure out what you're getting to. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky balance. Yeah. And, and that's... I, I keep coming back to this, but another part of why you comfort us each week is that you two, both of you, are invigorated in a time when so many people feel defeated. Mm -hmm. There's a cynical part of me that, that always goes away a little bit after an hour with you two. The part of me that thinks, well, we need a Trump. We need, a, we need George Clooney to run for president. Or <laughs> somebody who's, who's extremely famous. Possibly. Maybe that's the solution. But I think fundamentally... You just have to take the long view and realize that it's all about lash and backlash, <laughs> lash and backlash, two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, three steps back, and then five steps forward. You just don't know. But if you look at history, we've been in worse spots. And yeah, it may take a while to clean up from whatever it is when, when Trump's circus leaves town. And people will be hurt, but uh, people are always hurt. You just have to do the best you can. I've been I've been saying more or less that to high school students that I mentor. That that the I don't even know if I stole this or if it's my words. It's not it's not 
it's a paraphrase of someone that the path of justice is not a straight line. Yeah. And that they have mm-hmm. to remember that. And I don't want to believe that we have to put George Clooney up for president. <laughs> Nothing against him. Nothing against him. He, he'd cut a fine figure. <laughs> but we just, you know, we just have to hope that our institutions, the law, and ultimately the, uh, you know, if Trump doesn't pan out for his voters, his voters will know it. I have to believe he'll know it. They'll know it. And if he does pan out, then we're going to have to examine our reality a little closer. Yes. Ours and theirs. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what I'm, I'm, I'm happily seeing a little more of since the election. But this is too complicated for the moment to, to go into something new when you've got to go. But what I've seen a lot of since the election from smaller NPR and independent things is a kind of poverty or hillbilly porn. Mm, yeah. Well, they're asking the wrong question, aren't they? They're asking, have you changed your mind yet? They should be asking and asking again, why did you make that decision to begin with? Tell me how you live. Tell me what you're afraid of. Tell me what the, what the government did wrong or hasn't done. Yeah, or how you've been left behind. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are plenty of people who have, left, who have been left behind in the cities, too. Of course. Of course. But I think people in rural areas feel like they only see the city left behind on TV. I felt towards the end of the election that, that Trump was doing all this self-sabotage, but that the people who were voting for him, it was almost the worse, the better. Like the worst thing he could say, the more they were giving the finger to establish, American establishment. I think for some voters, there was a certain nihilism in that vote. Yeah, I don't even like this guy, but I'm going to vote for him. Mm-hmm. Because I know Trump voters who have plenty of queer friends and black friends and immigrant friends, and, and they just ignored the issues because they wanted to give that finger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things went off the rails. So it'll be interesting to see how they get back on. I believe they will get back on. I just hope not too much damage is done in the meantime. I mean, Trump just released his budget, and it is a very cruel document. I know. And I'm sure I'll be hearing about it from you. (laughs) Thank you so much for what you do. Well, thank you for inviting me on your show, Jamie. Good luck with this. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Take care. Go check out On The Media as podcast or on your radio. Perhaps it will be a bit of comfort for you as it is for me in these fucked up times. There's one question that has been troubling me for a long time that I forgot to ask and I suppose I could email or call back, but I kind of like it as a mystery. At the end of every episode, Bob Garfield usually reads the credits. And at the very end, he says, and our episode today, I'm paraphrasing, was edited 
by Brooke. And I'm not quite capturing it. It was edited by Brooke. No, that's not quite it either. But there's a certain chagrin in his voice that suggests that, I don't know, maybe he wishes he could edit the show sometime. I really want to know what it is. And maybe someday I'll get to ask her. Or maybe not. And mysteries are great, too. To find out whatever you want to know about this show, go to 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's 1-5-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.C-O-M. This is 15 Minutes. I'm... Jamie Berger.